Today we are going to be continuing um, in our series in Genesis, and we began um, the flood narrative uh, last time we were together, and we're going to look at um, this narrative, um, kind of part two of it, um, and the actual flood event, as it's referred to as the deluge, uh, and we're going to consider um, two important themes, um, and that is righteousness by faith uh, and um, and judgment. Uh, and you know, you know, the church is often accused of being, a, a, you know, a place where hellfire and brimstone is preached. And Door of Hope has always been a church where the emphasis uh, is actually on what I believe the scales tip toward when it comes to God's character, which is His mercy, um, His grace, uh, His elective love. His that is His. Um, his choosing in his freedom to love sinners in their sin. But that doesn't mean that God isn't holy. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't have uh, a, a parameter on what he will allow um, into his creation. And if you remember in the narrative um, of the fall, that the promise that God makes to the woman is that the seed of the serpent will be destroyed and the seed of the righteous will be triumphant. Uh, and what we find in the flood narrative is the destruction of the serpent's seed. It's not the final destruction, but it is a destruction, if you will. And at the same time, the preservation of God's creation as he enters into a decreation, if you will. A demaking, an unmaking of what he has made. And so we will see in the flood, the world returns to the chaotic void uh, that was over uh, the world at the beginning of the creation narrative, where it says that the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. Um, and so there's these incredible return, these motifs that continue to, to rise up. And this is one of the reasons why um, the ocean in Scripture, if you look at the descriptions of the new heavens, uh, the, there is no ocean. Um, uh, mentioned and the, because the ocean is a type of chaos it's actually a picture of of destruction of something that is dangerous uh, and it's a picture of chaos and God is a God who is able to bring order out of chaos uh, and this is a this is a narrative um, that we can't avoid and so when we talk about the judgment of God I'm gonna I'm gonna close today with kind of five things that are true of God's judgment in Scripture that are consistent. Um, but we're going to just move through the narrative really quickly. Um, and I want to begin with talking about the righteousness of Noah. But let's, let's look at these two passages, because here are the two passages. I think the flood narrative becomes a prototype, if you will, of final judgment before the return of the Son of Man. Um, and the righteousness of Noah is also a picture of righteousness by faith. And so there are two New Testament passages um, that I thought were significant. Hebrews eleven seven, in regards to the righteousness of Noah, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I want to just state on that. This is a very interesting phrasing. He prepared 
an ark for the saving of his household, which actually was the saving of the world, um, by which he condemned the world. And I think this is a picture, um, once again, of why Door of Hope is not a church that believes that the primary message from the pulpit should be one of God is angry with you, uh, but that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It was actually Noah building an ark, which is a symbol of God's salvation that became the condemnation for an unbelieving world. The refusal to accept that this is the possibility of their salvation, and yet it became a source of mockery, much like the church today. So I think that that is an important aspect. And then look at this passage on the judgment of God from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. It says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, basically acting like nothing was gonna change, that there is no judgment coming, that they can live as they want, and what happens until that day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so this is, this is Jesus utilizing the flood narrative um, as a prophetic word that this is how the world will be when he returns. It will be essentially asleep, it will be mocking God's elect saying, when is the supposed return of Jesus? And when we look at the world today, I think of Matthew 24 often when I read, I mean, the news is quite disturbing right now. Would you not agree? And it, what did Jesus say? There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, when I think about the amount of natural disasters of earthquakes and floods and weird weather and all these things, and you start wondering, are these the birth pains of God's warning that the world cannot sustain where it is going right now, that it is moving toward a conclusion. And I'm not here to give you some kind of prophecy update or pin the tail on the Antichrist or something like that. Um, but I am here to say that Jesus said there would be warning signs and that we are to pay attention to those things. And by faith, one of the most essential aspects of the Christian faith is the fundamental belief that Jesus will return to this world bodily. That it's not just some kind of mythological hope in some sort of higher um, awareness. No, it's the belief that God is going to create a new heavens and new earth. And I don't care if it's something totally new or it's a great recycling program. That doesn't matter to me. What I know is that it's going to be made new. It's gonna be made new. Um, and it also will be the mark of a final judgment as well as a final salvation. Um, and that is something that we need to reckon with. It, what we need to reckon with is that there is a real war between good and evil in this world. And whether we sense it or not, and I think that if you have your eyes open and are a, a thinking human on any level, you cannot ignore that there is a real battle between good and evil in this world. So. Let's begin with this narrative, because we begin with the righteousness of Noah. It says in Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
You shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two, each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven, each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. Now what I want us to focus in on in this narrative is this statement, because what is being said here? Um, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Um, there's other things I could say about the narrative. For example, this is the first time mentioned the, the, um, the command to take um, extra, more than a pair of what is referred to as the clean animals. This is already pointing toward the sacrificial system of Israel um, and the very specific animals that were used in Israel's worship. Uh, and remember what it says in Hebrews, once again, that the blood of goats and lambs could never take away the sins of the world, but Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. So all of these things are shadows pointing to the ultimate sacrifice found in the Son of Man. Um, it's a beautiful topic, but that's not what I wanna focus in on today. What I wanna focus in on today is this idea of the righteousness of Noah, because the way that it reads, it seems as if Noah was doing a lot of good, and because of his goodness, God saves him and his family. But I wanna be clear that when we are told that one was righteous before God or blameless before God, that the blamelessness or the righteousness um, is, is a, another way of saying they were wholeheartedly devoted to me. So what does Jesus say in the um, Beatitudes? Blessed are what? The pure of heart, for they shall see God. But what does it mean to be pure of heart? Does it mean to be without sin? Because we're told specifically in scripture um, that if one says they have no sin, they're a liar. And they're basically saying God is a liar. But the one who confesses his sin will be forgiven. So to say that Noah is without sin and, for, and, and to be clear, the first thing that happens after the flood, as we'll see in a couple weeks, is that Noah plants a vineyard and the first thing that happens is Noah ends up getting drunk uh, and ends up being exposed and it turns into this whole ordeal with his sons. So Noah is not a man without sin. So what does it mean when God says that he is righteous? And what I would say is that according to Hebrews and according to the New Testament, that Abraham, as it says, believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, I had a really fascinating conversation recently um, with a young woman um, from Door of Hope. Uh, and it was a really powerful conversation. She said something um, that really struck me. And that is that she grew up in a home where her, the faith that was practiced in her home was a works-based faith. And it was all about do this, do this, do this, and God will accept you. And she said, as she's become, began to explore Christianity, she, and it, was a, it was a really awesome conversation because she was so honest and began to explain that for her, it is much easier to fast, to just obey, 
a God that may or may not love her because that's not really a part of her faith um, than it is to love God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She goes, that's so nebulous to me. That's, it's ambiguous. I don't even totally know what that means. In other words, it's much easier to just do some things and hope that you'll be accepted than be asked to enter into what is a real relationship. Because relationships are complicated. And they require a lot. And they, so people always say, like, Christianity is way too easy. They say you're saved by faith alone. Well, first of all, I always say that it's much more, I would say it's much more difficult to receive help and to acknowledge that you need help than it is to serve or to give. Receiving is actually much harder than, than giving in many ways. Because giving is still something that you can control as a means of justifying your existence before the world. But receiving is a recognition, uh, especially when we're talking about salvation, is that A, you're accepting that you need to be saved. And to accept that you need to be saved is to accept that you can't save yourself. And that does not bode well with our modern way of thinking about existence and what it means to be um, independent selves. But that's why, and especially, we also forget that we are products of our own culture. Most of us in this room are Americans, and America is built upon the declaration of what? Independence. But Christianity is a declaration of total dependence and an absolute acceptance of complete and total impotence. And if you don't like that word impotence, I don't know what to tell you. It just means that you don't work without help. <laughs> it's many layers to that statement. <laughs> but, but let me just state this, that when it refers to Noah as being righteous then, how then should we define it? Well, what it, we told Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Same that is meant by the blessed are the pure in heart. It's not, I did everything right. I, you know, I... I've, I followed through, I, I did, you know, I did all the commands, I kept all the commands. No, it's a wholehearted giving of oneself, a wholehearted surrender. That's why I always use the example that, what, is, what does it mean to be pure? It doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to be wholly given to something. And that means that I can wholly give my glitchy, broken, sinful self to God, and it is in my surrender of my sinful self to God that becomes the, the thing that is imputed to me as righteousness. I am trusting God to fill in all my gaps. This is why when I use the definition of what is actual saving faith, I love the definition of an airplane. If I have faith in the plane, I'm not saying I believe the plane exists, I'm saying I believe if I get on the plane, the plane will take me from a to B. There is a law that holds me to the ground, the law of gravity, but there is another law, law of aerodynamics, which means that if I put my faith in the object that has the ability to break the law of gravity or to, uh, to work within it in which it can fly, then I, my, my faith in that plane means I have gotten on the plane and it doesn't matter how scared I am of flying or not. If I get on the plane, I'm going to get from point A to point B. But how much faith we have in the object in which we place our faith defines or determines the enjoyment of the trip. 
And so with Noah, what we have is the blessed is the pure in heart for they shall see God is that he is not perfect, but he is wholly surrendered. And that holy surrendering, that's why we say that you can be pure wine, doesn't mean you're good wine. Um, and so, so it's not about the content. The content is mixture. It's about the surrender of the content of who you are to the one who is perfect and holy, and that is God himself. Noah's righteousness is that he was one who was dependent on God. That's essentially what it's saying. And what it also is saying is that Noah's righteousness became a covering for his own family. I think that this is a powerful aspect. Uh, this is something too, I would just encourage you guys when it comes to um, family, some of you may be married to non-believers um, or you're concerned about your kids and their faith. Um, and so this is constantly a parent's concern because we don't, every person must come to their, come to belief in God for themselves. But that doesn't mean that your righteousness, that is your dependence upon God, doesn't have an impact on your household because it does. And I think that it creates, whether it's, a, whether it's an awareness or not, it creates, um, I believe it creates a spiritual influence on your environment. And I believe that with all my heart. Um, this is why when it says, you know, raise your children in the way they should go um, and, and they will not depart. Well, I think what it means is that there are seeds, Proverbs are never, um, uh, they aren't so much promises as they are probabilities. And I think that this is one of the great realities is that, is that we don't realize the spiritual influence that we can have on another human being when we live righteously, which means that when we live in continual dependence upon Jesus, in spite of our brokenness, we continually come into the light. We lay ourselves before, before God um, and we live openly before people because we know in whom we have believed and we believe that he is able to complete what he has begun. So I'm a man who can have unbelievable seasons of depression. I can feel restless. I can, I can stumble off the path. Um, I can fall down again and again. But the one thing that, I, that I'm so grateful for that God has given me is the gift of faith. I never cease believing that Jesus is real. And I've come to the place, I always said, I've never, I've never struggled with believing in God's existence. I definitely, in my many early years of faith, struggled that, to believe that he actually loved me. But once I came to the conclusion that he really loved me, it's been the thing that's been able to sustain me even in those dark periods where I feel like I'm spending more time on my face than I am on my feet. Um, and I don't mean on my face praying, I mean on my face because I keep falling down, because I keep making stupid decisions. The thing is, is that God will continue to utilize any man, any woman who simply submits themselves fully to him. And this is why you have the gift of such a weird, quirky, eccentric, and probably a little bit crazy pastor. And I feel like that says more about you than it does about me. <laughs> Our righteousness is not because we did everything right and nothing wrong. Our righteousness is because we believe in the God who alone is right and who alone is good, and it's imputed to us. He is looking for men and women not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but he is looking for any man, any woman, any boy, any girl who simply looks up and says, help me, save me, save me, I need help. It's the beauty of the gospel. This is what is meant 
by the righteousness of Noah. And God chooses Noah, man of mixture, like every man through human history with the exception of Jesus, to become a conduit of salvation, not just for his family, but for the world. And so here we see God's providence, his provision, um, if you will, uh, and his, his, and his, um, his desire to save. Um, it also speaks of how dark the world is, uh, that Noah is living out his, and this also speaks to, uh, I want to just say this, it just kind of came to me just now, but I think this is a beautiful picture, because you think about the time it took to build that ark, which was Noah was a prophetic voice. He's building um, salvation for the world. Uh, and the world is mocking that, that effort. And I think sometimes we can, I, I, I find this, I just recently when I was in California, I was talking with the grandfather of the bride and he said, <laughs> it was so cute. I mean, he's like, he's like 89 years old. So it's like so much to glean from, I love talking with people that have lived that much life. Um, but there's also, there's also just kind of, you tell an 89-year-old conservative in the Inland Empire of Southern California that you're from Portland, Oregon, and you're like, you are literally from, you like, you came out of hell itself. And he's like, he's like, is Portland still burning? And I'm like, I'm like, probably. Um, but it's where God's called me. It's where God's called me to be. But I think that this is a picture, Noah's faithfulness, in spite of the fact very few converts, very few people responding to his message of salvation, very few people taking the message that God is a God of mercy, but, and he's slow to anger, but there is a point where, where the line can be crossed. Noah living faithfully in a place that would not receive his message, I think is a great encouragement to us that it doesn't matter where we are in the world, what matters is who we're following, who we're surrendered to, and we have no idea of the impact. Um, if every Christian just bailed on Portland because Portland is a, is a nightmarish progressive city that has so many dumb policies that we have to keep asking the question of like, it doesn't seem like it's rocket science to figure out what's going on in our city. Um, we have a massive fentanyl and, and meth you know, problem and we turn it into a housing crisis. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, nobody's going into a house as long as they're a meth addict and a fentanyl addict. But we, we're, everything's so upside down. It's easy to get frustrated. Like, I gotta get out of here. I don't want my kids to be raised in this place. And I get that. But I just want to remind you that wherever you go, sin will be there because you'll be there. So what matters is, has Jesus called you to this place? And if he has, it's not our responsibility to concern ourselves with how much fruit there is. What it, our responsibility is to, remain, to maintain an intimacy with Jesus and allow him to be the one that produces fruit as he sees fit. I think that that is important for us to understand. Let's consider now the undoing of creation. In Genesis chapter seven, verses seven through 12, it says, so Noah with his sons, his wife, his son's wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. 
And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heavens were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, this is a return of creation um, to that place that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It is a place where the waters now, and it says that the waters broke up from the deep and came down. So what it is speaking of is a massive, violent event. Now, no matter how mythopic the language is used of the flood, the, the author's usage of specific dates um, and even Jesus himself referencing them. I mean, the flood is referenced again and again by the prophets. Um, it's referenced by Jesus himself in the New Testament as something that actually, actually happened. And not to mention that, that there are flood narratives um, from many cultures in the world. Uh, and, I, and someone asked me recently, I, I said, I made a passing statement. There's been debates on whether it was a, um, a local flood or a global flood. I see no reason to believe that it was anything other than a global flood, but I don't think you're outside of the, the umbrella of orthodoxy to believe in a local flood. I think it's interesting that most of the states in the United States in the middle of the country have ocean beds of fossil records um, that speak of some kind of catastrophic event where, you know, I don't know. Once I believe in Jesus, someone asked me that this is the flood was the great narrative piece that my atheist painting um, friend uh, used to rail me on every day at work when I first became a Christian. And I realized, A, the stupidity of trying to argue something scientifically because A, I'm not a scientist, and B, we're talking about something prehistory, which means before history. Um, and so, so I'm like, I'm like, what are we debating here? It's like, uh, so how, what did Noah do? Did he have freshwater tanks on that boat? And I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, man. And then I just knew the only way to shut him up every time was it'd be like, listen, Dan, I don't know how that all works. I just know that Jesus loves you. And he would get, it just, oh, it would just be like, like you're skirting the, I'm like, all I know, you gotta come to like, don't argue the gospel from the flood narrative is what I'm saying, friends. Like, like we, we should begin with Jesus. Um, and the moment you believe that there's a God who actually has entered into his creation, creator becomes creature, and somehow become, becomes the perfect man, the perfect human that none of us can be, and actually becomes the one who is both the judge and the judge in our place and somehow deals with this separation issue that comes from sin once and for all through the crucifixion of his earthly body under Roman rule um, as the conduit of salvation for humanity. Once you've crossed that realm, friends, you're already insane to most of the world. So I feel like the flood's just like an easy like, let's just start with Jesus, and then we can, and then you're like, okay, well, I already believe in Jesus. And so this is not that difficult to me. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't struggle with this. I'm like, why do I need to struggle with this? 
God can do whatever he wants. Clearly, God is the one orchestrating this. If God is the creator who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, then he can also be the God who undoes what he created. This is the author's right to edit his own narrative. Um, and so, so I think the, the questions around the authenticity of this story, I think that A, I think there's enough narratives worldwide in many, in many faith traditions of a flood that it's something that we can trust. To the extent of it, I don't know, but I believe the, I believe the text because I believe God's word. And I love this, that it says that it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600. That, that specific date is interesting. But the idea of the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven open, the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. This picture of this, it's literally the opposite of Genesis 1-2 where God begins to bring order out of the chaos. He now, re it's almost like, um, the way that I view it is like, is the restraint that, that we somehow forget that everything is held together by divine fiat. Everything is held together. And all it takes for everything to come apart is just for God to remove his hand. Now, what this says to me is not a God who is cruel, who is in the business of destroying. What it says to me, because the world returned to the evil state it was in before the flood, and it didn't take long for it to get there, so what the biblical narrative shows is not a God who's fickle, who just is quick to destroy what he's made. What it shows is his reluctance to uncreate a creation that has essentially rejected him. That it is God's sustaining hand that keeps the sun where it's supposed to be and the earth where it's supposed to be, and the oceans where they're supposed to be, and the land where it's supposed to be. It is God's sustaining hand. And this is where I see God's sovereignty. And that is what I mean by sovereignty is his freedom to sustain a world that has rejected him. So I don't see the cruelty of God here. What I see, what I am is amazed by God's unbelievable patience. His unbelievable patience. But I also am struck with awe and fear at the power of God. The power of a being that can unmake the world. You know, the, the idea of the atomic bomb as the destroyer of worlds is, you know, the bomb is a pretty terrifying thing. But the atomic bomb has nothing on a God who has the power to pull back his hand if he wants to. And I think that if that makes you uncomfortable, good, it should. This is why uh, we, Brett and I were just talking, uh, she heard a, a speaker who was very cavalier in describing Jesus and referring to him as a dude. And I, and I just think, A, you know, I love, I come from a Calvary Chapel background and Calvary Chapel definitely is Jesus by the campfire. And, and I always was, I remember I dated a Catholic girl um, when I was first out of high school and I remember going to mass with her and I was like, man, this God is like, like much scarier than I, like I just remember being like uncomfortable um, because so much of the service was, 
it wasn't so much relational, my experience of it, I'm not saying this for all Catholics, but my experience of it was much less relational. The, the high church, the liturgy, the stoicism of the priests, all of it, um, it, it, it's built around a reverence and an awe of God's otherness. And that is something that can get lost on us because Jesus has come to us in human, human form. God has come to us in human form. God has given us a face to relate to. Um, and, and that is a powerful thing for us. And Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And that is beautiful and holy. But we should never forget that, yes, he came as the humble servant. But he, if you read the description of Jesus in the beginning of Revelation, it's, it's much more terrifying. If you try to draw that description in Revelation, it's, it's like a... It reminds me of like the like Japanese like uh, monster movies of the 70s. You know, he's got like flint, you know swords coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are fire, and his feet are brasses. Like I just picture like my in the 70s, I had these little toy robots from Japan that like shoot their hands off and stuff. Like it, it's like a he's like a big monster. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing, but the picture that the writer of Revelation is trying to create is the holiness, the awe, the power, the majesty, and the full control over life and death itself. Not just over life and death, but over the universe as we know it. And this is the God that we're dealing with. And it is something that I tend to err on the side of a comfortability or familiarity with Jesus because I believe that that is what the gospel is about but it doesn't mean we should ever lose our godly fear. Um, that is our awe and reverence that we are dealing with the one who spoke in the universe left into existence. And I think that this passage in Genesis is a reminder of the one that we, he is like us and he is holy other, holy other. But look at the divine grace of God. Because in Genesis chapter seven, verses 13 through 16, it says, on that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, which is in the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. That's the line I want to focus in on. And the Lord shut him in. You know, one of the fascinating things about all of the um, Mesopotamian flood narratives is that the hero of the story shuts themselves into the vessel by which they are saved. But only the biblical narrative shows that this is all God's work. God's sovereign hand, his providence, his protection, his preservation. He shuts them in. And I think that this picture um, is something that is meant to draw our attention to the confidence which we should have in God's protective covering over our lives when we live righteously. That is when we live by faith, when we surrender our glitchy, messed up vehicles. See, it didn't matter it didn't matter what the content of each person was that got in that ark. What mattered is that they got in the ark. 
What matters is that they got in the ark. There wasn't like a, it wasn't a big test. It was like, I believe God and I believe this thing's going to be real and I'm getting in. And I think that this is the great call upon humanity today is that God's, God's divine grace here is that he is a God who will accept any man, any woman, any boy, any girl who simply says yes to his yes. Because there is a judgment narrative here, but final judgment for us on this side of eternity has been wrapped up and completed in the one who is both the judge and the judged in our place, and that is Jesus. And if Jesus died for the salvation of the world, if his yes is a universal yes spoken over sinful humanity, then for you to say no to his yes is to not allow yourself to be shut in to his covering love. It's to put yourself out in the world of chaos where death and destruction rule when he is inviting you in. If anyone believes me and obeys my word, I will come into them and they will come into me and we will, I will make my home within them. I will shut them up, in other words. In the, in, I will hold them in my protective hand. Nobody can snatch my sheep out of my hand. And the question is, is are you his sheep? Have you said yes to his yes? And like that conversation I had, some people were like, there's gotta be more to it than that. I've got, I've got to, you know, I've got to get my, I've, I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with people through the history of Door of Hope that said, I want to follow Jesus, but I've got to get, I've got to get my stuff together. I've got, to get, I've got to get some things worked out. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Because you're never going to have everything worked out. Get on the boat, and then you can have a lifetime of working through, working through. But you can't work anything out if you're dead. You got to be alive first. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, um, what they are is they're basically living in a constant state of death. And so there's a beginning point. It's a beautiful process of becoming transformed by increasing degrees of intimacy into the likeness of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. But there is a starting point. I remember reading a book called Finding God at Harvard. And it says, there has got to be a movement from perpetual seekers to eventual finders. And I think that we have, you know, you remember hearing about the mega churches and the seeker sensitive movement. You know, the, my one qualm with that is this idea that, that, um, that somebody should, like, if you're a seeker, that's a good thing. It's a good thing, but not if you don't become an eventual finder. And this is why the gospel is an invitation to start today. Today is the day of salvation. We say no, not today. And this, this was my mindset in my early 20s. I have always had a weird fixation with Jesus. But my belief when I was trying to be a rock star and doing drugs and the whole thing, it was that, you know, someday when my music career is over and I'm washed up, that's when I'll, you know, probably find my religion again. Um, but right now, party on. That's the, this, you know, that's the thing. And why? Because um, it's not that hard, guys. Sin is fun. It just has very diminishing returns. It's just like it, low yield. 
you know, instantaneous joy, you know, two minutes of joy for, you know, an eternity of pain. And this essentially was like, that was maybe the motto for my 20s. Uh, it's like every time I slept with someone, something is lost in my soul. Every time I did a drug, the fun I had for the moment often would turn into a bad trip <laughs> a few hours later. Or it, was like, it was amazing how things that were so much fun just had diminishing returns and became less and less. And this is why salvation was it's not something I'm like, I can't just put that off. Like, I believe it, but I'm not going to actually, I believe the plane can fly me, but I'm not going to get on the plane. It's like, I believe that the, the ship will keep me from drowning, but I'm not going to get on the ship. Like, there actually has to be a starting point. And the starting point is you've got a lifetime to figure out the, the mysteries. You've got an eternity to figure out the mysteries of what it means to be a child of God, of who God is, of what it means to be saved in spite of our brokenness and sin, what it means to live by faith. Understanding, I would say, apprehension comes before comprehension. I apprehend the truth long before I comprehended it. I believed in the gospel before I even understood it, you know, and I still don't fully understand it, but I believe in it. And I think that this is the beauty of divine grace. And the question that I have for you is that God is clearly here. He is graciously, lovingly protecting those and shutting up within that boat. That boat is a picture of salvation in a world that was drowning in evil. Look at the judgment and preservation in 17 through 24. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. And keep in mind that the, that the, the, the Hebrew narrative here is meant to show it's, it, there's a repetition um, in the violence of the water and the complete destruction of God's creation. It, it, it is truly an undoing of creation. And the waters prevailed, increased, increased, greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upwards and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and birds of the air. It's a reversal of the order of um, the creation narrative right there. Um, they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I think the, the power of this passage is the severity of the judgment, the finality or the completeness of this judgment. And you picture, this is why I like to think of it as a global flood, is this unbelievable unmaking of the world, but floating on top of the chaos is a small boat with the world's only hope of continuing. The preservation in light of the, the judgment, this God shutting up and keeping that boat afloat, because <laughs> if I was Noah, and being a man who is the master of completing things 90% um, and leaving 10% undone, I would be very stressed about my building capabilities. Um, <laughs> and so God 
there is a divine protection here. Because could any ship actually survive that kind of violent flood? And this is where I, that's why I say that this goes beyond like my need to explain this some, somehow rationally. I, God brings the animals together like this. All of it is, there is, there is an incredible divine reality happening here that goes beyond human explanation. And it's not the point of the narrative anyway. The point of the narrative is God's, God's uh, determination to put away evil once and for all and God's determination to still love evil people in spite of their evilness um, who say yes to him. Because that's why I always say it. There's only two kinds of people in scripture. Evil people that say yes to God and evil people that say no. Because I, I like to think, nobody here, if I was asked, how many of you view yourself as evil? Most of you are not going to raise your hand. But Jesus says to his own disciples, you being what? Evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We don't like to think of ourselves in those terms. But all a saint is, is an evil person that cried mercy. That's all a saint is. Mercy, I give. You win. I'm yours. Take me. I'm yours. Here we have judgment and preservation. And so I want to just close. I feel like I've been as clear as I can be on what righteousness is. Righteousness is not your perfect effort to live out some kind of law. Your righteousness is your total surrender in spite of your brokenness to the God who is perfect and righteous, who is right. But what do we do with God's judgment? And I want to just, um, I, there's a, a theologian, Ronald Youngblood, who said that in scripture, there's consistently five truths about God's judgment. And I just want to close with this um, because I think it all points us to the cross. First of all, he says that whenever we find the judgment of God, um, that the judgment is not arbitrary. It's not some, it's not out of the fickleness of God. It, it's come for a specific reason. That God's very character, his nature, his laws have been violated to the extent that judgment is warned again and again. You cannot fight against the one who created the universe to, for himself and has called us to trust him that he might transform us into his likeness. To rebel against that, you cannot rebel against the ground of being without losing your being. Is essentially the, the fact of, 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 that's not just the fact of, of scripture, it's, it's also the fact of, of you can take God out of the picture. You fight against the laws of the world, it will be your destruction. You drink too much, like my dad, it will eventually kill you. You know, you choose to not eat, you, you try to violate the laws of existence, you don't eat, you starve to death. You don't drink water, you die of thirst. I mean, there's like, it, there's, there's all kinds of rules that are necessary for existence. And so the judgment of God is not arbitrary. It's saying, listen, you keep going this way, Destruction, real judgment is coming because God is unmoving in his character, in his nature. And yes, he is patient and yes, he is merciful. Um, but 
God also is a God who stays true to who he is. Number two, they are announced beforehand. God in his mercy always announces beforehand the coming judgment. The warnings are given. It, it's like a fairy tale. It, Chesterton once said like life is like a fairy tale. It's, it's, it, the fairy tale says you can live in the glass castle but you can't throw rocks or the glass castle breaks. I, I love that picture. There, there, is, there is a reality in which the announcement of, of judgment that's coming is saying, listen, this is coming. And so that, that warning is a real warning that thresholds have been crossed, that lines are being crossed. And this is why I think it is, um, it is a fool's errand to think that we can just keep doing whatever we want without consequences. Real warnings. There is time allowed, number three, for repentance. Every time we see the judgment of God proclaimed, there is legitimate time for repentance. So what is horrifying about the flood is that Noah building the ark was, a, was God's, God's proclamation that judgment is coming in the form of a flood. There was time for people to repent and to get on that boat. But the mockery and the refusal and the rejection that it says in Hebrews, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were having kids. Basically, they had written him off. This is stupid. It's never coming. It's never going to happen to me. Isn't that the common denominator with most stupid thinking? Magical thinking is, is an amazing thing. We're just like, this can never happen to me. Listen, I don't think we should live with a constant state of fear. Because if you think, I'm never going to die, I just want to, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm confident that the death rate is one per person. So, I just don't know when you're going to die. So, there's things that are out of our control that we are all moving toward a closure of our story. And our story matters. And we are told that we will be judged for what we have said, what we have thought, and what we have done. Um, and the only safe place is to be shut up in Jesus. Uh, and this reality is that there is time for repentance, which means there's time, but that means that there is a limitation to that time. Because the fourth truth about God's judgment is that they are carried out and they result in death. And when I say death, death is, is, a, um, is a severe word, a word that we actually don't really like in our culture, um, but in scripture there is different kinds of death. There is the actual physical death, and then there is the more terrifying reality, which is spiritual death, which is spiritual death is the outcome of refusing the one who is the source of life. Spiritual death is trying to find, find your ground of being in something that is illusion. Um, and so God says, here's the judgment, it's coming. If you aren't grounded in me, then you are grounded in illusion, and illusion can only end in non-being, death, death. And finally, all judgments of God are due to his justice. That is, his righteous character violated, and to be set right. So even his judgment is a means of him correcting a wrong to bring about what is right. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable with the God that we worship, let me just state this, is that the gospel turns the judgment of God 
upside down on its head, and all of the things that I just stated here are true, except God implements his judgment upon himself. And I, I don't want to, I want to be careful when we talk about the cross in terms of God the Father judging God the Son. I like to say that Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place. That Jesus willingly takes the judgment that should come upon the world and its rebellion into himself. So this is why I love that Dorothy Sayers says, whatever game God has played with human beings in our suffering, he has played fair and taken his own medicine, is that the gospel is the great, every world religion has a severity. When I think of the monotheistic religions, when you think about Islam, or you even think about Judaism um, and reject Jesus as the Messiah, you are left with um, the inescapable reality of a God um, who you will never know if you're okay with. And, and I want to just say that what Jesus offers us is I recognize your rebellion, I recognize your brokenness, I recognize your impotence, it's the whole reason I have come. And the reason I have come is so that I can actually step into that place in which that judgment, the uncreating, the, the unmaking, if you will, death, and all that that means would be swallowed up in my perfect sacrifice. And this is why Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And so Jesus becomes for us the ark. And this is why baptism itself is a picture. It all points back to the deluge. It's, it's death in the water and resurrection life. And it is the picture that we have here is these truths Jesus, there is nothing arbitrary about the judgment that he takes into himself. It was announced that he was going to die for the sins of the world long beforehand. There is time, we live in the time and the age of grace where we call people to repent, that is change direction. Stop chasing after things that will kill you and turn to the one who has actually conquered death itself for he is Christus Victor. He, is he has destroyed the power the dominions of darkness and, the, and the, the evils of this present age. He is our safety. Trust in him and be saved. This is why it says that whoever believes, whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and, and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. No front loading, no back loading. It's not built upon anything you do. It's built upon the fact that God has done everything necessary Everything that needs to be done has been done in Jesus. That the judgment of God has been carried out and it ended in death. Death of the Son of God Himself. But death could not keep the one who is life. And this is why the great hope of the Christian faith is built upon not just His death, but His resurrection and ascension as well. And Jesus as the judge and the judge in our, in our behalf, justice has been served. And there is now recapitulation, which means that the Son of Man is the new representative man. He is the second Adam. A new humanity has been birthed. And he is the victor over sin and death and the dominions of darkness. God will never flood the world again, but 
Now the clock ticks toward the final, the final reality, which is the creation of new heavens and new earth when Jesus, the Son of God, returns as he promised he will. And I think that the question is, is do not reject the only lifeboat that can save us from the chaos of this world because Jesus is the lifeline. And I promise you that to trust in him isn't just a way of escaping death or hell, but it is actually to find life and life abundantly, to find hope and real meaning and purpose, to build your life on something bigger than yourself, so much bigger. This is the word of the Lord, and this is the power of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray.